lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, we want to start out by welcoming new members to our listener community in Facebook. It's the Still Growing Podcast Group, and new members this week include Scar Jerstead, Sally Ferguson, Robbie Rude, Debbie Gibson, and Joanne Vandenberg-Ohms of last week's episode. So if you have more questions for Joanne about spring flowering bulbs, I'm sure she would be happy to answer them. We also want to congratulate some of the giveaway winners from last week's episode. Van England, John Sheepers, and Kitchen Garden Seeds were giving away three items from their collections. And our lucky winners are Michelle Duncan Wilson. She wins the Naturalizing Narcissus Bulbs. And then Shireen Shermer is winning the Fall Treasure Chest from Kitchen Garden Seeds, so a host of lovely things to plant in fall. And then Lynn Bullman is winning the Woodland Naturalizing Bulb Set from Van England, John Sheepers, and Kitchen Garden Seeds. So congratulations to you guys. Go ahead and private message me your address information, and we'll make sure that those lovely prizes get sent your way. And I also want to congratulate LaVon Hamelman, who won the Mighty Axe Hops swag giveaway. So if you really like the show and you want a chance to win some of the great garden giveaways for my guests and sponsors, then go ahead and join the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. That's where you can ask questions and share your own garden stories, interact with the guests that are featured on Still Growing, like Joanne Vandenberg-Ohms, and also connect with listeners of the show. So all you have to do is is go to Facebook and search in this search bar under Still Growing Podcast Group. And even though it looks like a closed group, go ahead and request to join. And as soon as I verify that you're not a robot or a spammer, I'll let you in the group. Now, the Still Growing Listener community is also where I share some articles that I curate throughout the week. And this week, I found three really good ones. The first one was from the Sierra Club by Leela Nargi, and she shared five new books to get you gardening, cooking, and thinking sustainably. And the one that caught my eye is a new book called Seeds on Ice by Carrie Fowler. And it's all about the world's only global seed bank, and it's all set in Svalbard, Norway's frigid Arctic vault. And in this super cold, snowy mountainside is the repository for about 850,000 different unique crop varieties and seeds from almost every country in the world. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. Now, another post that I found this week is this fantastic urban fairy garden that was put together by Laura and Aaron Laboudelet out of Garden Answer. And they did such a tremendous job. She put together a fairy garden in a galvanized tub and did the entire thing by hand. And it is so creative. So one of the things that she did, well, a couple of the things that she did that I thought were absolutely astounding is she created her own living wall, but in miniature. So she took a piece of wood and then applied really large popsicle sticks 
and then stained those with various coats of walnut finish to give it that reclaimed wood look, and then made a palette, a miniature palette out of popsicle sticks, and then went through her garden and got little pieces of succulents and made this miniature succulent fairy garden. It is something you have to see. It's really tremendous. So if you get a chance, head on over to the Still Growing Facebook listener community. You can check it out there or just Google Urban Fairy Garden. You'll be blown away by this one. And then finally this week, there was an excellent article in the New York Times all about ethnobotanist Cassandra Quave. She works at Emory University, where she's in charge of the herbarium, and her whole mission is trying to unlock the power of plants for medicinal purposes, recognizing that the antibiotic crisis that's been looming cannot be ignored, and her solution is to turn to plants for next-generation medicine. It's a fascinating read. Not only is she an amazing researcher, but her personal life story and why she's dedicated herself to work in medicine is extremely inspiring. Well, this week marks the fourth week of our book club featuring Marta McDowell's All the President's Gardens, and we are on Chapter 4 called Embellishments, and it's covering the time period in the garden from the 1840s to the 1880s. So this week, I will have a blog post with questions for your book club, along with some videos of that time period to supplement all of the great information found in the book. Anyway, I certainly hope that you're enjoying the book and all the supplementary material for your book club. I know it's one of my favorites for 2016, and I'm really looking forward to sharing with all of you my interview that I did with Marta McDowell. And of course, all of this is timed to come to conclusion and wrap up the week of the elections. So it'll be the perfect week to talk about all the president's gardens with Marta. And by the way, if you have questions or comments that you'd like to share with Marta, she is in the Still Growing podcast group on Facebook, our listener community. So go ahead and post any questions or comments that you might have to Marta. I'm sure she'd be happy to answer or chime in with her perspective. It's such a great book. Well, today's show is exciting because it's my first double feature. So I have two shorter interviews that I have put together to create this episode. And first up is Laura Eubanks of Design for Serenity. And then following that will be my interview with Benedict Van Heems of The Big Bug Hunt. So I'm going to start out by introducing this first segment with Laura. And then when this segment is done, I will introduce the second segment with Ben. Now, I am a voracious magazine reader. I have many, many subscriptions, and try as I might, I just cannot get through all of them. So I have stacks of magazines that I regularly try to go through, and I tend to compile my gardening magazines by season so that when a new season rolls around, I usually have a little stockpile from the previous couple of years that I can go back and look at for inspiration or ideas in my own garden space. And just this past month, I happened to be going through a fall issue of Country Gardens magazine from 2014. And that's how I stumbled on Laura Eubanks because smack dab in the middle of this magazine is an article that's called Plant a Pumpkin. And it was all about Laura's fantastic designs on top of pumpkins. She uses moss and glue 
and then put succulents on the top of these pumpkins to great visual impact. I can't tell you how gorgeous they are. They absolutely stopped me. I can't even tell you what came after this article in the magazine because I didn't even bother reading the rest of it. That's how good this article is. I just completely fell in love with what Laura was doing. And I immediately said, okay, I've got to track this lady down and see if she'd be willing to talk to me about how she does what she does with these pumpkins because they're just so tremendous. So I reached out to Laura on Facebook and I was so tickled to hear back from her and that she'd be willing to let us in on all of the creative inspiration that led her to this process that she has for putting succulents on top of pumpkins. So now that falls officially here, I wanted to get this information to you guys this week so that as you're going out and you're buying pumpkins, you can buy pumpkins with this amazingly beautiful craft idea in mind. Now, here are some of the things that I think are really great about Laura. First of all, she's pragmatic. So she's very real when it comes to giving tips and techniques for how to approach any type of craft or design when it comes to succulents. The other thing that I love about Laura is that she is passionate about plants. And this shines through when we're talking, but I think even more so in her YouTube channel because she does the absolute best YouTube videos on succulents. And she does this thing called your succulent tip of the day. And I guarantee you that if you go to her YouTube channel and you watch just one of her videos on how she transforms and designs spaces for succulents, you will be completely hooked. And people invite her now to come to their homes all over the world and create her succulent mosaics. She does really, really great work, and she's a really, really great gardener. I know you're going to love listening to Laura. Well, welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Jennifer. I am really excited to talk to you. When I stumbled on this article in August 2014 edition of Country Gardens, there was a feature right in the middle called Plant a Pumpkin. And these pumpkins were so captivating that I thought, I'm going to track Laura Eubanks down and invite her to be on the show because they're just <laughs> tremendous. Thank you. And I'm not alone, right? I mean, when you and I chatted a little bit a few weeks ago, there have been a lot of people that have seen your work and tracked you down. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I uh, I got into the garden business, if you will, of just about 10 or 12 years ago by accident. I had always enjoyed gardening for myself, but never it occurred to me to make a living out of it. My husband and I have four children, and it was really important to me to be home with them. So, you know, I would putter around in the garden while they were at school, and then I also had a little home daycare business on the side. So one day, one of the moms said, my neighbor just got their home completely remodeled, and she needs landscape, and I told her to call you. And I said, are you out of your mind? I don't know anything about landscaping. I can plant flowers. I mean, that's way out of my league. And she was so insistent that I finally relented and went to visit her friend. And yes, of course, it was completely out of my league. I mean, it was like downtown Beirut oh. at this place. They had nothing. It was just dirt. But the people were great and really enthusiastic. And, you know, I thought, well, if it were me, 
what I would do is get a landscape contractor in here to, you know, pour concrete and put in flower beds and do the irrigation and the lighting and all of the hardscape. And then I guess I could come in and plant stuff, maybe, you know, I, I, I guess. So I figured, okay, I've done my due diligence. I've helped my friend's friend. I'm out. Well, a few months later, I get a call back. Okay, we did what you said. We got all the bones in. We're ready for you to come plant. Oh, my, oh gosh. my gosh. Oh, I know. I know. I was, uh, oh, God, I thought, what have I gotten myself into? But I went over, and it was not really that big of a job because this was before our drought, you know, and they had had their lawn put in, and there really was just a few flower beds that needed some stuff planted in it. So I told them, okay. $15 an hour, I'm your girl. And they said, sign us up. So that was my very first client. Wow. And that client then referred me to a friend who referred me to a friend who referred me to a friend. And you know how that goes. And before I knew it, you know, I was slowing down the car at the curb and kicking the kids out so that I could go get to work. You know, rushing through my day, crap, I've got to get the kids racing, screeching up to the curb to pick the kids up, get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. We've got to go to the nursery. And then we're tooling down the freeway. You know, the kids can't even see because I've got plants on their lap. Uh, You know, it's just got crazy. But I did keep a lid on it, you know, until the day came when my youngest informed me that it was no longer cool for me to come to the school and volunteer. It was no longer, you know, my presence was no longer required. Uh, they were getting older. And I thought, you know, I need, I need another outlet. I, I need something else I can do to volunteer my time. So I looked into the Master Gardener program. And it just so happened, as uh, a state would have it, that the San Diego Master Gardener organization was holding an open house the next weekend for people that were interested in joining the organization. So I went, and long story short, I was accepted into the program, and in 2008, I became a certified University of California Master Gardener, which gave me a lot of confidence because, you know, I had no formal training at all in landscape, and I felt funny, you know, taking money from people when I didn't have any credentials whatsoever. And any gardener knows the more you do it, the more you realize you know nothing. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that anything grows is nothing short of a miracle uh, once you start to learn the science of botany and horticulture. So I took the classes. It really expanded my horizons. You know, I learned so much. I continue with ongoing education uh, through that organization. And that's, you know, really my the formal training component of what I do. Just about five or six years ago, I discovered succulents. And it had nothing to do with the drought and everything to do with my need to start doing installations that didn't require me being there every week to maintain them. I was getting really overwhelmed with maintenance, and I had little to no time to invest in design because I put all of my clients on contract for maintenance. I I did never wanted to walk away from a design and not be able to come care for it. And that's really how I learned my trade you know, to to do this installation and then follow it week after week after week and watch it season and watch it grow and deal with the problems and deal with the failures and manage the successes, taught me volumes. But, you know, once again, I had way, way, way too many uh, hours of maintenance and not enough time for installation. So succulents, I thought, well, shoot, you know, these things look pretty tough. And I just started puttering around with them. You know, they got on my radar. It's like 
when you buy a red car and then all of a sudden everybody has a red car, I just began seeing them everywhere. So in my fun time, I decided that I wanted to uh, to try to be, you know, artsy-fartsy and creative with them. So that's what started this whole pumpkin craze was a trip to Trader Joe's. And in lieu of my traditional Halloween jack-o'-lantern pumpkin that I got every year because I was too cheap to pay $2 more for an heirloom pumpkin, <laughs> I decided I'm going with the heirloom this year. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling high on the hog. I'm going to get one of those funky Cinderella pumpkins. And I brought it home. I set it on the kitchen counter and it occurred to me that would look really good with succulents on it. And that's how it started. Well, tell me about this whole pumpkin process because, well, anybody who has seen them, I think they about fall over because they are gorgeous. And you have refined this. I mean, you're a master. You're trained and certified on working with succulents, especially when it comes to anything creative, anything where you're you're taking, you know, a succulent and turning it into art. So walk us through, if we're going to try this, attempt this at home, what kind of pumpkin do we look for? And then where do we begin? All right. Well, first of all, you want, you want a pumpkin that has kind of a flat surface. The orange jack-o'-lantern pumpkins, they're kind of wobbly. They don't have a lot of planting surface. So you want something that's got lots of room on top uh, to plant. Then, when I did this the first time, you know, it, it was really that simple. This pumpkin was sitting on my kitchen counter, and it just hit me, put succulents on it. I hadn't seen it done. You know, it was it was my pet rock idea. It was it was an original idea. I was way too lazy to cut into it or hollow it out. That would have been way too much work. So you don't cut the pumpkin. I think that's the most important thing. People assume that it's a planter, that you have hollowed it out or created you know, a pocket where you can stuff soil into it. No, 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 no. Uh, the pumpkin will rot and desiccate in days if you do that. Do okay. not cut it. Don't cut the pumpkin. The reason <laughs> I love this, damn, yes. cut the pumpkin. when I think about you, Laura, I think about Joel Karsten of Straw Bale Gardens. You know, he's the pioneer of Straw Bale Gardens. And when you and I had our pre-chat, I said, I just associate what you're doing with succulents so much to what he did with straw bales. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, first of all, there's nothing proprietary, you know, about a straw bale or a pumpkin or succulents. And yet right. both of you have found ways to, you know, utilize these and transform what most people have done with these things for years and years and years. You know, if you get a pumpkin around this time of year, you're probably going to carve it. And Mm -hmm. both of you continually run into people that see what you're doing and at first glance think that they understand what you're doing, not digging deeper and then running into problems. So I always think about Joel, yeah, because those bales have to be conditioned. You don't just throw a plant in a straw bale. And I'm so glad that you mentioned about not hollowing out that pumpkin because when I saw this pumpkin, I thought you'd hollowed it out for sure. And I was just going to attempt it on my own. I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, hollow out the center of this pumpkin, fill it with soil, throw my, you know, succulents in there and call it a day. And that's not what you're doing. No, that'd be about all you'd get out of it <laughs> in a day. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, you know, there was no, there was no premeditation here. That's part of the fun of this. You know, I didn't think it through, and I've learned everything in my life that's ever gone well 
it's because I didn't think about it. <laughs> so it keeps me very, very humble. You know, this was just a bubbly, creative thing that just happened to take off. When I saw the pumpkin sitting on the counter, I thought, okay, I want to put succulents on it, but how am I going to get them to stick? Yes. You know, that was a conundrum. So I thought, well, shoot, what if, and I, I'm looking, I'm glancing over, and I have this house plant right next to me that I have sphagnum moss, you know, the top dressing around the house plant. Yep. And I thought, well, shoot, you know, I'm going to put sphagnum moss on the pumpkin first. Because again, you know, I kind of wanted some sort of a base or, you know, something between the pumpkin and the plant. So I grabbed the moss from around the plant, but then it occurred to me, well, crap, how do I get it to stick on the pumpkin? So by this time, I'm fully invested in this, right? The house could be burning down. <laughs> I didn't care. I was I was going to figure this out. So awesome. I'm rattling around in the drawers, and I find tacky glue. Now, who does not have a bottle of Aileen tacky glue in their house? Amen, Everybody sister. has a bottle of glue. Yep, and it three bottles. It doesn't have to be Aileen's. It doesn't have to be tacky <laughs> glue. It can be hot glue. It can be cement glue. It can be fabric glue. It can be Elmer's glue. It doesn't matter. The succulents don't care. But I have found that the Aileen's clear tacky gel does dry clear and it does dry fast. And it's really easy to get your hands on at Walmart. You can get it at any craft store, really. It's just easy to find and inexpensive. So... I didn't have any clear gel. All I had was the gold bottle stuff, which is a little watery. It takes a while to dry, but hey, that's all I had. So okay. I smeared this glue on the top of the pumpkin, and then I pressed the moss, dry moss, not wet moss, because wet moss will not stick to the glue. Okay. So you don't want to wet the moss, dry moss. I stuck that down on top of, of the glue that I had smeared all over the top of the pumpkin. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with all these roots? And soil. So first, I just kind of knocked the soil off of the succulent. You know, I, I had gotten these little, you know, two, three-inch potted little cute little plants. And I thought, you know, I, this is messy. I'm just going to cut the succulents. I'm going to remove all of the roots and all of the soil, and we're just going to use succulent pieces. This is going to be a very temporary thing, like a flower arrangement. And by using the cutting, I thought, I can cram a lot more on there. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I cut all the succulents up and I just crammed them on top of the pumpkin by taking a little dollop of glue and attaching it to the little cut end of the stem. Okay. And okay. Now there quick, you go. Quick timeout. Quick timeout. Where do you like to get your moss? Oh, well, the moss, and it, that's another thing. It doesn't matter what kind. I like sphagnum. I find that Spanish moss is a little stiff, okay. but you can use it. Um, you can buy the, the sphagnum moss at Home Depot in the bag, any garden center. Okay. I buy it by literally by the bale, but you don't need to do that. Most likely, you can just pick up a cute little bag of it at Home Depot or, again, at the craft store. Okay. And again, the purpose of the moss, the barrier or the foundation between the pumpkin and the succulents, the purpose is what? Well, at first, I thought the purpose was going to be decorative. I assumed that some of the moss would be exposed and, you know, it would look cute. But once I got going, I realized this is subjective and personal, but personally, I don't like the moss showing. I want to cover it all up. So initially I thought, well, what was the point of the moss if it's not going to be exposed? But then I got to thinking, well, since I'm using cuttings and I knew from, from brief experience that cuttings will 
regenerate roots. Yes. I thought maybe the moss would give the succulents, you know, a little support, a little, uh, little organic material, a little something for the roots to hold on to in the event that this might actually be viable and last longer than a few days. And lo and behold, it did. Those succulents did not disappoint. I Mm. simply misted them with tap water. I love to water, so I misted them probably more than I needed to. I misted every day a little bit with some tap water in a spray bottle. And within a few weeks, those little succulents had thrown off new roots and were starting to regenerate and grow again. Do they root into the pumpkin? Do they actually root right into the top of the pumpkin? It is organic after all. Well, it's so, it's really hilarious what ended up happening um, with the first pumpkins that I did. You know, after the holiday season, I put them out into the garden. I just set them on the ground and kind of forgot about them, you know, because then it's Christmas. And the last thing you want to look at at Christmas is a pumpkin. At least that's <laughs> the last thing I want to look at. That's right. So I just forgot about them out in the garden. Come spring, I noticed little pumpkin seedlings popping up in my garden. And I remembered, oh, my gosh, that's where I put the pumpkin. And upon closer inspection, what I discovered was that pumpkin had decomposed into the soil, all but the stem, which is how I was able to identify that there was a pumpkin there at one time at all. And all of the little succulents had also found their way into the ground. And I had this adorable little succulent top pumpkin less the pumpkin growing in the spot where the pumpkin was in the fall. You so that's one way to lady. do it. I can't right? believe it. I mean, you, not only can you, you know, can you start a garden that way, but you get pumpkins too. And that's one way to go about it. Other idea is, and this is another way that the moss comes in handy, is after the season and you're over the pumpkin completely, you can take a butter knife and just lift the arrangement, moss and all, right off the top of the pumpkin. And then that little arrangement can then be moved into a pot or planted directly in the ground. And then the pumpkin can be used for whatever you want to use it for. Oh, man. So many things happening with this right now. So when you're saying take that butter knife and uh, slip it between the pumpkin and the moss, that the moss will just kind of, what, lift off? It just lifts right off. It does. It just lifts right off. Okay. See, at first I thought you were going to say hack off the top of the pumpkin, but you don't even need to do that. No, that's way too much work, Jen. Okay. <laughs> Again, you're getting into Again, effort now. Just, and that's just too much. That doesn't, that doesn't fly with me. <laughs> okay. No, no, it's way too complicated. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Now, uh, here's something else I have to mention because you've done thousands, probably tens of yep, thousands. Probably. I made a horrible mistake one time and I got the little tiny mini pumpkins. You know, they're about baseball size. Because, mm-hmm. of course, with four kids, just like you, we went to the pumpkin patch place and I don't know, it was some ghastly astronomical, you know, pumpkin thing. And I said, no, no, just get the little pumpkin. Each of you just can get, you know, I don't want to spend $50 on pumpkins here. So no. uh, they each got a little pumpkin. And then, oh, I still regret this decision. I said, let's put them on our mantle. Our, oh. our, wood, our wooden mantle, oh. where they Oops. sat for six weeks and proceeded to start to rot and uh-huh. took the finish right off the top of my uh-huh. mantle. So what yeah. do you tell people about if they're going to have this arrangement in their house? Do you have them put something on the bottom of the pumpkin or what do you do to address that? 
Yes, that is a real issue. I put one too on my dining room table, walnut. Um, And they, you know, they can, the moisture condenses underneath. So even if the pumpkin doesn't rot and if the pumpkin hasn't been, you know, pricked or snipped or clipped, it will be a pumpkin for like a year and a half after Halloween. But if it's got any kind of little, you know, nick in it, that can open up the potential for rot. So I encourage people to always create a barrier, use a trivet, you know, or a a dish or a bowl or a plate or something, but don't put the pumpkin right on wood. That's uh, even if it doesn't rot, it's going to discolor the wooden surface. Funny story, Deborah Lee Baldwin, who is, you know, the queen of succulents and has written all these fabulous best-selling books on succulents. She really discovered me and was so instrumental in promoting succulent top pumpkins. It was because of her that I had that article published in Country Gardens magazine. She Aww. produced that article. And she forwarded me an email. This woman had got a succulent top pumpkin put together, and it was the centerpiece at a retirement party at her work. And everyone is enjoying their party and, you know, they're drinking and they're laughing and they're having a great time. And in the middle of the party, the pumpkin blew up. What? It just exploded. The pumpkin went everywhere. The innards went everywhere. The succulents went flying. The whole thing just exploded. So that that was the only time. I don't know. I cannot imagine. I don't know what happened. That's the most dramatic story I've ever heard oh. uh, in relation to the pumpkins and the succulent topped pumpkins. I have many people that have written to me in hysterics because they have painted, spray painted their pumpkin for the seasons. The darn thing won't rot. You know, oh. they sprayed it red for Christmas and then they sprayed it green for St. Patrick's Day and then they sprayed it red, white, and blue for the 4th of July and it just won't die. So, you know, mixed bag. Absolutely. That is nuts. So, and we need to say too, that you're in Chula Vista. You are in a, do you call it a suburb of San Diego? I think you would, yes. Okay. Do the temperatures matter? I mean, we're here in Minnesota. I mean, I know what it looks like by December when the snow has fallen. There's not much of that pumpkin left. But uh, where you're at, are you saying that they can just last so much longer, do you think, because of the climate down there? Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty much 70 and sunny here year round. So we can do so much outside, including display our pumpkins. Wow. That's just tremendous. So I know in the Country Gardens magazine, you were using a spray adhesive, but you're saying mm-hmm. any glue works. And to oh, use any glue works. Any glue. And, but, you know, I got, I got smarter with it. And, you know, I started doing hundreds and millions of these. And I got a spray adhesive to spray on top of the pumpkin. And then I applied them off on top of the spray adhesive rather than taking the squeeze glue, you know, squeezing it all over the top. It's just more efficient. But as far as attaching the succulents to the moss, any glue works, hot glue, cold glue, you know, any, any type of glue. And don't forget the accoutrement, as I call it. Another thing that I did when I started making these pumpkins, it occurred to me that it was fall And I wanted more than just succulents on these pumpkins. So I started looking up when I went out on my morning walks with the dog. And I noticed in my neighborhood, there were all kinds of different types of trees. And I could collect acorns, pine cones, jacaranda pods. I mean, you name it. There were pods and seeds 
and leaves everywhere for the taking. So add those wonderful elements of nature to your pumpkin as well. All of the pretty little little seed pods and in fall looking ornamentations. I've got this wonderful follower that lives in Hawaii that sends me little ironwood pine cones every year, boxes of them in exchange for sending her and her relatives pumpkins in the mail. That's that's, uh, how we work that out. So yes, don't forget about all of the, the pretty little natural elements that you can bring in to this pumpkin. Well, and you were featured, we were talking, you were in uh, Sunset Magazine, and that pumpkin is not orange. That's a green pumpkin, and that is absolutely gorgeous. And Oh, gosh, isn't it? Yeah, and then in the Country Gardens one, uh, you're arranging on top of, well, it must be a squash because it looks like kind of a pumpkin log, but that's not right. But you use all kinds of colors and shapes for this. Oh, absolutely. And they're available, you know, here. I hope they are everywhere. All these different shapes and colors and sizes and, you know, variety is the spice of life. Yeah. Wow. And I love the foraging aspect that you're incorporating things that are seasonally fall in whatever area you happen to be in. You know, it's so funny. When the Country Gardens article came out, I was prepared to offer the pumpkins nationwide because I knew I'd be hearing from people. And I could provide locally here, and I did, and I set up um, basically a factory in my garage, just a sweatshop, my kids called it. And from dawn until midnight every day for six weeks, I had myself and a team of design assistants assembling, 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 assembling. I had such a demand locally but then I also wanted to be able to provide these to people throughout the United States that, that got country gardens and wanted to try their hand at it. So I created succulent-topped pumpkin kits where I would send everything except the pumpkin via the mail. And that meant I had to do more than just walk around the neighborhood. I needed a resource. I needed a supplier. I needed a one-stop shop where I could get these seed pots, and I am way too cheap to pay for that. So I made a deal with a local wholesale nursery that sells acres and acres and acres of every kind of tree that you can imagine. Okay. And they allowed me to go to the back growing grounds and take whatever seed pods I wanted. So here I had a forest at my disposal. And about once every week or two, I would go with boxes and I would just collect 10, 12, 14 different types of seed pods from all of these trees that were lined up in two or three acre expanse. So if you really get into this and you want to do both, find a local tree grower and go get your pods there. I have to ask you something because I have a feeling I know the answer. When I'm at a garden center and I'm in the succulent aisle, I love to look on the ground. Because Mm -hmm. you know what I'm going to see there. I'm going to see little chunks of these succulents that have just fallen to the ground that people are going to step on or or they're going to get swept up and thrown. But I just feel so bad for them. They're they're on the ground, but they're totally viable. Well, you know, what I did, because I'll do the same thing, is I ask. You know, and the nursery staff and personnel, they're always so gracious. And oftentimes, if you ask, they'll give you more if you ask you'd be surprised at how much more you're able to get because that kind of, that extends out into the parking lot here in San Diego. There are shopping malls, you know, and our, in our master plan community. 
species. There are succulents everywhere. And, you know, I'm not just going to go take them. I mean, these, these have been intentionally planted and, you know, they're not mine to take, but maybe they'd run amok or maybe they're completely overgrown or maybe they would benefit from a pruning. I mean, legitimately, I'm not just saying that. Yes. And then I, in exchange for shaping and, and grooming and rescuing these poor succulents, get the bounty, get the leftovers. So I call it community service. I okay. always have my clippers and a uh, handsaw handy, <laughs> uh, and, oh. but I ask. And you ask, well, now here's something else that I have a little emotional block around. So help me get over this. And that is applying hot glue or any type of glue to these little succulents. I feel so bad for Mm -hmm. them. I mean, I'm going to obviously have to put them on top of the pumpkin, but does it really harm them? Are they just traumatized for life? Apparently not. No, but I've got a few death threats. I'm not going to lie from people that heard me cavalierly mention that, oh, yeah, just slap that hot glue right on the, you know, right on the end. And they were horrified. Um, I know it doesn't hurt them. It never occurred to me that it might. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing that my four children are still alive. (laughs) Um, But, no, it, it really never did occur to me that it would harm them. I was just so caught up in the process. But you know what? It doesn't. It hasn't. You know, and you can use the hot glue gun on a warm or cool setting. It's fine, but no, I have not seen any ill effects ever. Well, and all of the yeah, and you're tons saying of these I have done. Yeah, and you're saying that they actually heal over and uh-huh. start to root anyway. So it's just Those like any little succulents. Yeah, they yes. root right through the glue. Okay, and so... it doesn't seem to matter whether I've used you know the clear tacky gel or, or a hot glue gun. Doesn't okay. seem to matter. So they're doing I what they the okay. So they're doing what they're biologically designed to do, which is heal over wounds and survive. That's right, because they carry succulents are like you know the camels of of horticulture. They carry all that water and nutrient in their leaves and stems, so they can survive without a root system for a long period of time, and just throw off a new system. And that's why they're so successful, you know, working with them as cuttings and how you can maintain the shape and the size. You know, it's like getting a great haircut. You get a really great haircut, you just don't want your hair to grow. Why can't it just stay like this? Well, that's the same principle with succulents. You know, when that succulent top pumpkin, the plants on it start to grow and get a little misshapen, you simply, you know, can remove the plant entirely, cut it off at a desired height, throw the little stems and roots away and reset that pretty part right down on top. And the same applies to a uh, landscape as well with succulents. And I teach that people don't get it. They can't quite get their head around that concept because in traditional landscaping, we cut from the top, you know, in succulents, you cut from the bottom and it's mind blowing. Yes, it is. And people just look at me with their eyes, you know, rolled back in their head. They just, they can't, even when I'm showing physically showing them, it oftentimes doesn't even register. Wow. Tell me about working on the top of the pumpkin. You know, there are going to be people that have listened this far into the show and they've already checked out. They're at the store buying the pumpkin right now. They're going to go to town. They're like, we're done. I got it. I know what I'm doing. But then there are people that are still listening going, okay, I'm going to, you know, get my glue on top. I'm putting my moss And now we're at the point where we have to design the top of this. And we want ours to look as good as yours. I mean, you have an eye for this. So 
Give us some tips. Do we start in the middle? Do we start on the edge and work our way, you know, like a clock around? Or do we leave the stem on? Do we take the stem off? What are your little design tips? Like a handful of Laura Eubanks top design tips for making a killer pumpkin top. All right. Well, it's more, it's not so much about method as it is about materials. I have taught so many workshops. I've worked with hundreds and probably thousands of people. And I'm amazed at how, despite the fact that everybody in a class has the same material, their pumpkins are completely and utterly unique. That Nothing makes me happier than that. So some of them will start at the side and work their way around. Some of them will start in the middle and work their way down. Some will work from the bottom and work their way up. And I learned to let people create in their own way. As long as the outcome is something that they're proud of and that they like and they're going to enjoy, who am I to say how? So it's more about materials. You need to have, first and foremost, a thriller. You need to have a succulent that is going to draw the eye. It might be something, you know, spiky or, you know, a great big rosette, but it needs to be something big and wow that's your focal point. And always left or right of center. Don't ever try to create a perfectly symmetrical design. It's off-putting. There are no straight lines in nature, and it's just a trick of the eye that things that are... (laughs) This is probably why people like me, because things that are slightly off are just more attractive somehow. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, more approachable. They're, they're more believable. So first, you find your big thing. And oftentimes, I'll use a magnolia pod as my thriller. Oh. It looks kind of like a protea. And here in California, magnolias are, I think, prevalent trees. And they have this wonderful big pod. But it doesn't have to be a pod. It can be a plant. Stick that on top first. And then... You take your medium-sized succulents, and you work those around the big ones. And then, you know, you work in descending order until you're down to the smaller things. And then you'll take maybe a, a sedum blue spruce or something that's trailing or a crassula, and you do your little filler off the side. And if you can think in those terms of thriller, filler, spiller, big, medium, small, and then look at, use my photo as a guide you will have success. Just remember also that when you think you're done, you're not. Okay. That you can always cram more succulents on that pumpkin. <laughs> remember that these are going to shrink. Oh, they do? You, they do because, you know, they're using all of that moisture in their leaves to throw off a new root system. So okay. they'll, they'll shrink up a little bit. Okay. They'll cram them in their tight, get back, and cram in more. Okay. Lift the skirts, tuck the succulent cuttings underneath. That's kind of a way to get them to, to stand up. People will say, oh, my succulents are falling over. Well, you just need to take one, and it's almost like a car jack. You know, you just take a succulent and brace it. Brace that tall one with a medium-sized one and so on and so forth okay. to get those things to stand up. But the most important thing of all is that you have color and texture and variety of sizes and that you have enough plant material to make it look really, really full and bountiful. Do not skimp on the material. Okay. I have another question for you. I do head planters with succulents 
And when I'm working with the head planters, I'll use those floral pins sometimes Mm -hmm. to kind of keep my succulent in place until they root in position. And then it really doesn't matter. But I get a little bag of those floral pins. They look like like a long staple kind of, you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about, I bet. Yeah. So is that something that you would say, yeah, do that? Or you would say, don't puncture that pumpkin? You, yeah, you puncture it. You're looking at uh, maybe a week with it. Okay. And it's going to start, the pumpkin's going to start to shrivel. So don't do that. So do not, do not puncture the pumpkin. Okay. Move away from the floral pin. <laughs> No floral pin. We are not cutting that pumpkin. We We are are leaving the pumpkin in place. And also, when you go to get your pumpkin, look it over very closely and make sure it doesn't have any nicks or or visible, you know, uh, penetrations because that pumpkin is not going to last. Okay. Now, do people ever write you with questions about the pumpkin? Do you have any top questions that are commonly asked? I suppose the big one is, should have I hollowed out this pumpkin and filled it with dirt? Right. You know, and then people want to know how often to water. Oh, yeah. Know, Tell and, us and about that. It, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, the succulents don't care too much. They're good. They, like I said, they've got all that moisture in their leaves. Uh, they're not really going to be doing a lot with water until they've rerouted anyway. So, you know, I will mist the pumpkin with tap water once a day, more for myself than for the plants because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Um, But watering is not really that important until the plants have reestablished your root system. And then, you know, you want to keep it moist and you want to keep it misted. You're not going to submerge the pumpkin in water. Just simply overhead misting with tap water is sufficient. Will the succulents grow, you know, without roots and without soil? Yes. They will grow into the moss. I oftentimes use moss as a substitute for soil in planters because it's cleaner and it's lighter weight. And my experience has shown that the succulents really don't have a preference. They grow just as happily in moss as they do in soil. Wow, I love that. One other question for you, and then I'll let you go, and that is placement. Can you put these in full sun? Should you protect them from the sun? Should you have them in shade? Where is the ideal place to put these, especially if they're going to be outdoors? Right. Well, through the holiday, it's fine to have them inside. Succulent cuttings on a pumpkin will be beautiful indoors for two or three weeks with no ill effects. But when it comes time to move it to the outside, a lot of it, too, depends on what part of the country you live in and what the temperatures are doing. You know, here in San Diego, we just throw it outside and forget about it. But for you in Minnesota or for people in other places of the country where it might get chilly at night, uh, very, very cold during the day, you've got to think about it. So remember that these plants prefer temperatures under 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, above 40 degrees Fahrenheit. They prefer dappled sunlight and afternoon shade. So no matter where you live in the world, if you can provide that kind of environment, you're going to have great success. Here in San Diego, the ideal place for my succulent displays are under my pergola in the backyard, where it's in dappled sun pretty much all day long. I have stephanotis growing over a trellised top, and it just allows just a sprinkling or a dapple of sunlight all day. And my goodness, the succulents 
thrive with no intervention from me whatsoever. Well, so avoid full sun, absolutely, no matter where you live. Because again, the succulents will burn most likely, even even if they have roots. But if they don't, they're going to be particularly sensitive to sunburn. So okay. keep them protected from full sun. Wow. Well, but you know, in the fall, that's not so much of an issue. Most places, no. temperatures are cooler. You yeah. know, it's it's not such a big deal. Well, God bless you, Laura Eubanks. I tell you what, you came up with something that's really, really special. I'm looking forward to doing it. I think I'm going to have a bunch of girlfriends come over and we'll plant pumpkins together. There you go. Uh, there and, you yep, go. And have yeah. some fun and doing it. And send me pictures. Oh, I'll send you pictures. You come up with. I'll send you a video. I'll send you a video oh, and I'll say, that. hey, Laura, check this out. Oh my gosh, we owe it all to you. Well, I, I know people are going to have fun with this and enjoy it. And you're going to be on a future episode where we just talk about Everything, Laura Eubanks, your whole garden story, because it's fascinating, oh, and you're such a gem in the world thank of horticulture. You. So we've got to we've got to have you back, and um, I know we're going to do that, and you'll be on a show in the first quarter of 2017. We'll get you on, I think, sometime between January and March. We talked about right. Yes, that'll be fantastic. I yep. can't wait. Yep, very, very fun. Well, thank you for being on the show today, talking to us about how to plant a pumpkin, and you have yourself a happy fall. Hey, you too. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I've enjoyed it immensely. Oh, likewise. Such a treat. Well, wasn't that fun? I know I'm looking forward to this weekend getting together with some girlfriends. We're all going to bring different cuttings of succulents from our gardens and then kind of mix and match and put together our own creations for uh, succulent pumpkins. I'm so looking forward to it. You know, last weekend in lovely Maple Grove, we got pummeled with over 10 inches of rain in a single evening. I had to drive to the grocery store to rescue my son from his shift because we had so much flooding on streets that there was a very limited route for him to get home. I drove there to rescue him and then he followed me back and there was just a constant wail of police sirens because so many people were getting stranded with the flash flooding that was going on. In fact, even today, it's been a week later, we're still dealing with flooding on so many of our major roads and streets. So we have to wait for things to kind of dry out here and this pumpkin activity is going to be a great way to do something garden related without being in the garden. Well, my next interview is with Benedict Van Heems of The Big Bug Hunt. Now, I had a lovely chat with Ben. He is my first official guest from the United Kingdom, so that was also extremely exciting for me. We did this interview over Skype. Now, The Big Bug Hunt is a cool new citizen science project that's aiming to gather real-time information about the pests in gardens across North America and Europe. But it's not just limited to pests. They're also tracking beneficial insects as well. And I'd like to think of it as a sort of Pokemon Go for gardeners. It's a great idea with great folks leading the charge. And I'm really excited for the next generation of useful garden apps like the Big Bug Hunt. And that day is coming with these types of projects leading the way. I know you're going to enjoy listening to Benedict Van Heems of The Big Bug Hunt as he tells us about the predictive pest warning system they're putting in place. Well, hi there, Ben. Hi, Jennifer. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, you are my very first British 
interview. And you are part of this fantastic project that launched this year called The Big Bug Hunt. Why don't we have you start by sharing a little bit about your personal life, and then we'll jump into some of the things we both love, which is gardening and pest management. Fantastic. Um, well, first of all, can I say it's a huge honour to be your first Brit on the show. That is a, an honour indeed. Um, I spent actually nine months in Oregon over in Portland uh, as a student uh, during my degree and thoroughly, thoroughly loved the American people and got to love gardening over there as well. So it's great to be kind of back in North America, if you like, and, and chatting with you. So that's great. So I've always loved gardening. It's something I've been interested in since I was a boy. My granddad used to employ my services on his uh, on his veg patch in his kitchen garden. So I'd help him plant out the leeks or pick the beans. And, and that kind of instilled in me a real love of growing things. And it's something that stayed with me all my life. I studied horticulture at university or school, as you guys call it, and uh, been sort of writing about gardening and specifically sort of fruit and vegetable gardening for a few years now. It's great. I love it. Who doesn't love uh, talking about and writing about gardens? It's a lovely thing. And in this day and age, it's probably one of the safest topics that you can write and talk about. Isn't it just no politics, nothing controversial, just good, honest growing. And I think that's something that most people can appreciate. So that, that's great. You and I are aligned on that, Ben. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have to ask you, since you did spend time in Oregon, how did mm. that climate compare to where you're at in the United Kingdom? Because, you know, to yeah. me, I'm in Minnesota. Uh, to me, yep. when I think of Oregon, I think of rainy Mm -hmm. um, a little overcast. And I think they're in a similar zone to us as well. Yeah. Well, actually, do you know what? The climate was pretty much identical uh, to Britain. A little bit hotter in the summer, I'd say. Probably a little bit warmer in winter, but there really wasn't much in it. So that whole Pacific Northwest climate is... Uh, is very comfortable for us Brits. So, yeah. uh, a lot of the plants are similar as well. So there wasn't a whole new plant list to sort of learn. So that was a great thing, really. People do say that uh, Oregon and I guess Washington State as well are kind of very rainy and, and, and overcast, etc. I don't know if it's just because I'm a Brit and it's all relative, but to me it seemed uh, jolly, sunny and quite pleasant and uh, just pretty normal. But I guess that's me coming from a uh, pretty murky shores over here. Well, it's all what you're used to. You know, we can tolerate a lot of cold living in Minnesota. So, yeah. you know, to me, when I'm someplace and it's 50 degrees and everybody's wearing a sweater, I think it's fantastic. So, yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> like, yes. That's great. it. It's all relative. Yeah, yeah it's all relative. <laughs> and well, I guess you guys get some pretty fresh winters over there, oh, don't you? Over, we do. Yeah, yes, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very fresh. The freshest winters possible, I think. So, yeah. you reached out in an email about this project that you were working on. And I was very intrigued by it. And I thought, I need to talk to these guys and understand what they're doing. So give us an overview of your project called The Big Bug Hunt. Absolutely. Well, as a gardener, first and foremost, pests are my biggest bane of my life, especially things like slugs over here and aphids. And so as a company, we kind of asked our sort of users of our product, what irritates you the most and pests were number one above anything else so we're big fans of organic gardening and trying to deal with things naturally so what if you could predict when a pest was coming and uh, kind of put in the defenses ahead of its arrival this isn't anything new commercial agriculture 
has uh, systems kind of similar for things like corn and soy and wheat. So we're just applying it to kind of everyday plants in everyday gardens, really. That's what we hope to do. Well, the scale of your project is the world, right? You're trying to track uh, pests as they spring up in different places around the entire globe, right? It is. Um, because we're primarily English language speaking, obviously, it's mostly North America and sort of Britain and Ireland and sort of Europe. But we want reports from all over the world because essentially we're going to get all of the pests, all of the reports based on your zip code or postcode if you're in Britain here. And uh, that'll identify where the pest is, when it's reported, will obviously identify when it was spotted. And then that'll match with climate data for your area. So it can all match in and we can kind of look for patterns. Now it is over the world because ultimately, and this is quite a few years off, it would be great to be able to kind of apply it to kind of um, third world growers really, who lose a lot of their crop from pests and a small impacts on that would reap massive rewards. But primarily at the moment, it's North America and uh, in Europe that we're getting the reports from. Now, when I'm at your website, I see that you have a very, well, first of all, it's very pretty. It's a really attractive website. Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, well done there. And what you really want from folks is that if they have a pest that appears in their garden, you would love it if they would take the time to go to your website, bigbughunt.com, and mm -hmm. click on report a bug. Can we walk through that process? Let's you and I report a bug together and see uh, and kind of walk people through what that process is like. Okay, sure. So that's right. So you go to our homepage and click the report a bug button. And then you just type in the name of the bug that you've spotted, the plant that it was on, if you know it, and also your zip code, essentially. Now, if you don't know what the bug is, we've got some little identification guides on the website and you can click on that. There's one specific to the US and Canada and it's got all the common listed bugs that you're likely to spot. If they're not on there, then you can still enter it because we're interested in literally every single bug, good and bad, because we want to see you know, which are the most popular. We are working with bug experts to identify the most common pests so we give people a bit of a head start from that perspective. We want to know about beneficial bugs as well as pests because we want to be able to see how things like I guess climate change and other factors are affecting their spread too so that's why we want to know about beneficial bugs as well as pests in the garden. You know, one of the things that I thought was really nice about it is, first of all, when someone has to report a bug, it's just those three things. It's here's the bug, here's the plant it was on, and yep. then here's my zip code. They don't need to fill in their name, their address. You're not going to contact them. You're just That's really right. wanting them to report a bug. But the other thing that I thought was fantastic is this um, identification guide that you have, which is mm. very thorough and lots of pictures. That's right. Um, so, for example, if you click on a bug there, so let's say click on aphids, you get lots of different pictures of aphids and the kind of impact they have on plants. So you've got sort of several chances, if you like, to try and identify the pest with different pictures. And that's really valuable. But when you click on each pest as well, it gives you what to look out for, 
the conditions that they kind of spread in and also what to do about it as naturally as possible, wherever possible. And that's important because we're not just trying to get people to identify bugs. We want to try and give a little bit back immediately by helping gardeners with what we think is a really kind of comprehensive guide to dealing with pests. I think it's fantastic. You know, one of the things I did when I was a master gardener, which is pretty Mm. much a volunteer position, if you become a master gardener, it's a service opportunity for gardeners to help other gardeners. That's the primary purpose of being a master gardener. And so one of the most common things that master gardeners find themselves doing is helping people with pest management. And master gardeners are always looking for online tools and resources that they can use just as a quick handy reference. And I think your mm. website does that. I mean, I know the intent is really let's you know track and monitor outbreaks of pests around the world. But at the same time, this is a fantastic tool for people, master gardeners or just general home gardeners. And I think that's so important for people to recognize that they can report the pest, but at the same time, go to your website and find out quick and easy steps they can take to manage the outbreaks before it becomes something that's really out of control. That's right. I mean, we're very much about, you know, trying to give something as well. We don't just want reports and and that's it. We want to try and give something back immediately. One of the things you can opt into, and it really is optional, you just can type in your email if you want to be kept up to date. And we send you a weekly newsletter during the growing season. So sort of from the 1st of May to the end of October. And in each newsletter, you'll get tips on what pests to look out for that week, how to attract beneficial insects, which will help predate and eat the pests that you've got. And there'll be little things like charts you can download, links to videos on how to control pests and make your garden healthier so they're less likely to get impacted by pests. So it's something there that you can immediately enjoy and be part of a community and get something back. And of course, if you get fed up with it, you can just uh, unsubscribe. So it really is a, a no pressure thing. It's totally optional. Leaving a pest doesn't require you to do that. And leaving a pest, as you said earlier, is very quick, you know, 15, 20 seconds maybe, and you're done. When you were putting together this bug identification guide, I see you've got the two different guides. It's a guide for the United States and Canada, and then there's a guide for the UK and European bug guides. Yes, that's right. How do you decide what bugs make it in the guide? I mean, who made it into the guide and who didn't? It's kind of like the FBI's most wanted. Absolutely. (laughs) It is a bit like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really curious about that. (laughs) We've been working with, uh, in the UK, for the UK and European list, entomology which are bug experts at the University of York, which is based in England. And these guys are really hot on insects. They know what are the most common and which the most devastating to crops. So they helped us compile the list. And and that's great because we've had real expert advice and input into this. It's not just us scratching our heads and sort of looking around on Google. It's, uh, It's proper experts here. So they helped us put together the list for the UK. And they are the most, um, it's two things really, it's the insects and other pests that you're most likely to see, and it's also the ones that are most likely to cause the most damage if if they're less common. And in the US, we've been working with garden writer Barbara Pleasant, who's written a few books on on bugs and diseases, uh, including the Gardener's Bug Book. So she's an expert in that field as well and has helped us with the US and Canada side of things too. 
Oh, that's interesting. Do you mind if we take a moment and go through some of the bugs that are in particular listed in the bug identification guide for the United States? Yes, of course. No problem. Well, let's start out. We've got aphids. So you classify three different types of aphids, uh, black bean aphids, cabbage aphids, and then aphids in general. That's right. Aphids, super devastating to the garden. Um, Mm -hmm. You have these as well. We do, yes. Why is it important to track where aphids are springing up? Aphids sort of become active, obviously, when the weather warms up. And you can get sort of aphid explosions in population. So by tracking where they're spreading and when they're spreading or when they're likely to spread, you can kind of, for example, put up crop protection. So things like row covers and things like that. So you can sort of go pre-armed and cover your crops. And then when the aphids arrive, you're kind of one step ahead. So that's kind of why it's really useful. And this goes for most of the bugs, really. It's a kind of a heads up that pests are heading your way. So this is what we're working towards. And ultimately, I guess we'd see it as maybe an app or maybe some other application that you would have that would send you maybe even an email would say, look, conditions are absolutely perfect now for cabbage aphid. Just watch out and make sure you've got your crop protection in place. And this means that rather than being reactive, we can be proactive and we can sort of put defences up rather than trying to tackle the problem once it's arrived. So really, the intent is in the same way I get a weather alert, like we've had some bad storms rolling through, and I'll get a weather alert on my phone saying, hey, you're in a severe you know, thunderstorm watch, something like that. The intent behind this is that if you can get people integrated into their garden practice to report the pests or the beneficial insects, then as part of this whole system that you're trying to develop, they would in the same way get a forecasting tool that they could use about pests that are starting to encroach into their environment. That's exactly it. So um, it would be looking at past data and looking at sort of weather conditions that you're currently experiencing to give us sort of like a forecast. But also if there's lots of reports that would feed in as well. So it would kind of like look at what's happening now and what's happened in the past to give you those predictions. So it's exactly it. It's like a personalized pest prediction service. So obviously some pests are more common than others. So aphids being a prime example of a very common pest. So we'd anticipate that the most commonly reported pests, we'd have the data, if you like, quicker to do the pest prediction service whereas something that's a little bit more specialist, um, less common, like, for example, maybe asparagus beetle, something like that, that might take a few more years because it's less common. So we need more reports to come in. That's what we anticipate. Okay. Now, how about the bumblebee? I see the bumblebee listed, and I'm curious why that is included in particular. Okay. So as I said, that we're looking at beneficial bugs as well as pests. So we've got a, a range of beneficial bugs there, I think about 20. Some of them are ones that predate on pests by laying their eggs inside them and devouring them or just eating them, you know, straight up like lady beetles. The bumblebee is there. It doesn't predate. It's a fairly quiet, uh, passive insect, but it is obviously very beneficial. So we've included bumblebees because there's a lot of talk in Europe, at least. I'm not sure what it's like in the United States, but bumblebee decline 
And it's something that's a grave concern because if bumblebees were to vanish, then humanity would be in a very bad place indeed, because so many of our crops rely on bees to pollinate. So we're tracking bumblebees to see ultimately year on year, how are the numbers doing? Are they emerging earlier? Are they hibernating sort of sooner? That's why that's included. Um, And that's the same with butterflies as well. We're kind of interested to see how they're faring, really. Minnesota is really leading the way in the United States, uh, thanks to the work of Marla Spivak in the University of Minnesota, um, Mm -hmm. helping to educate people about the threats that our bees are facing, whether it's pesticides or monocultures, whatever's, you know, driving their demise. Yeah. But, you know, I have a garden tour that I'm participating in this summer. And I was heading out to take care of this rose that I have growing over an arbor. And in my mind, I've always seen bumblebees as really not a threat to me in the garden because I don't think that they're very aggressive. I don't think that they, not at all. They're not going to be stinging, you know, me. So I always see them and, and I let them, you know, do their work. Well, I went out to this arbor and I had a birdhouse that was suspended from a chain. It was a cute little birdhouse and I'd hung it there more just for ornamental, not really for birds or anybody. Just, I thought it was cute. Well, I Mm -hmm. went to prune this rose and I wasn't standing there for more than a minute I had just gotten out there and this bumblebee flew right into my face and stung me in the eyelid. Oh, I could oh, not that's believe it. Yes, I couldn't oh, believe it. Dear. It was so painful <laughs> oh, no. that I was gosh. like, oh my gosh. But what I realized after that, after you know, a couple of days of recovering, I went back out to the garden and I'm looking around just very cautiously. And here they had decided to nest in this birdhouse. So, oh, right. Uh, yeah. Right. So I reached out to the Minnesota Bee Squad because they have a group of folks throughout the Twin City area and they will come and remove a bumblebee nest or a actually a bee nest, like a native bee colony, and save the nest instead of destroying the nest. They want to, you know, obviously preserve as many bees as possible, and they will come and take care of that bee issue. Now, traditionally, Mm. they will not handle a bumblebee nest, but Mm. in this case, I've got about a 1,000 people coming through in a four-hour time span. (laughs) Right, yes, uh, yes. this bee nest, this uh, birdhouse is hanging right at eye level, and so they're stopping by this week to take care of it. But very Mm. interesting, I think, to start tracking where these pollinators are and how prevalent they are. That's right, because, um, you know, at the moment, people don't, uh, I guess there must be some kind of awareness of, of this, but to have a, a sort of a nationwide and indeed global, but talking specifically here about the US, to have people tracking it when they see bumblebees uh, could give a really good indication as to their health in the ecosystem. It is a concern, and I love watching bumblebees. They're so full of character, and I think it's one of those things that, uh, assuming you don't get stung, of course, yeah. that is it's quite therapeutic. You sit there after a sort of busy session in the garden, you watch the bumblebee move from one flower, pops out, goes into the next. And it, it's quite mesmerizing, really. So uh, it, they're glorious, glorious creatures. They and there's are. so many different, so many different types of bumblebees as well. You don't, you know, often don't, people don't often realize that there's one type of honeybee and many, many types of bumblebee and mason bees. So lots of different species out there. 
Well, absolutely. I have a friend uh, named Dawn Pape. She's a master gardener in the North Metro, and she's written a book about uh, Mason bees, a children's book, and her son is named Mason. So I thought it was oh, an lovely. adorable, yeah, That's adorable glorious. little book. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But with regard to bumblebees, I don't want to, to scare people, but I, I clearly had gone into, you know, they were trying to pollinate this yeah, rose, yeah. and I clearly inadvertently had, you know, come very close to this nest, and mm. I really think... It, it just kind of flew into my my face and I've got long hair so I think it kind of couldn't get out of there and it freaked out and, yeah, yeah. and I got stung but, but in general you know I've been around bumblebees for a long time in the garden I've never gotten stung and uh, yeah as you say people shouldn't be put off by them because no, uh, yeah. they're generally very passive creatures absolutely well and again it's always a reminder that we are in partnership with mother nature when we're going out into the garden and when we're putting things in the garden like a birdhouse you have to imagine that there are going to be critters and insects that want to make their home in that um, yeah and so it. you have yeah. to be considering those things when you're putting uh, objects in your garden i used to put way more stuff in my garden you know when i first started gardening i've been gardening for almost 20 years now and i find that i put fewer and fewer and fewer things out that's right it was yes. funny my bee contact was like we're going to come and get that birdhouse and then you know we'll definitely return it to you i'm like no 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 keep the birdhouse it's fine absolutely so one of the things we do a lot of it here in britain which i understand maybe you do less of in the u.s and correct me if i'm wrong but we make lots of things called insect hotels or bug houses and so they'd be waterproof containers that you stuff kind of plant stems in or straw or corrugated cardboard things for like lots of little insects to make their homes in and oh. spiders as well and the idea is you hang these up around the garden and things like lace wings and um, hoverflies mason bees and all these wonderful beneficial insects ladybugs they all make their home in there and then Come next spring, you've got a sort of on-hand army of pest controllers to spread out into the garden. Now, I understand that maybe in the US they're less common because of a termite problem. So I might be wrong there, but so that's what I've heard. Do you guys have insects? houses as a, as a rule or is you know, that a new I don't I have not used any I have seen uh, butterfly houses they they, they look like a bird house but they have little yep. slits that's um, right yes, yeah yes. and those I've seen but I haven't seen too many of them around I have not explored having those houses you know in my garden but mm. uh, definitely something to look into and of course ladybugs I mean everybody mm. wants ladybugs in their garden they're so beneficial they are. They are absolutely. And I had a, a vegetable plot once where it had lots of nettles growing in one corner and they seemed to really kind of make that their home. And the great thing was that I had some beans and they got black bean aphid. I thought, oh, no, this is a problem. I'm going to have to do something about this. But I thought, no, I'll leave it because I've seen ladybug uh, larvae around. So I'm sure they'll probably find their way. And they actually did. So within another two weeks, they'd found the black bean aphids and they'd munched them all up and the beans grew away unscathed. So they're such uh, incredible insects and they have absolutely voracious appetite for aphids. So one larvae can eat up to 100 aphids in a single day, which is just phenomenal, really. Yeah. Amen to that. Let's get more of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are lots of these beneficials. Hoverflies also eat lots of aphids and other soft bodied insects too. So 
if you can encourage these sorts of insects into your garden, then you don't really need to sort of think about sprays and things like that. So it's very important. I think a lot of people see a pest and they immediately freak out and they spray it with an insecticide and it deals with the pest. Great. But then you've got no pests, so there's nothing for the beneficial insects to feed on. So they all go away to another garden and then you're kind of reliant on artificial means of control. If you can work with nature, encourage a sort of healthy ecosystem in your garden, then you'll get pests. You'll always have pests, but they'll always be controllable and at a level where they will never get out of hand. So that's that's what we always encourage. I absolutely love that point. I think so many people get very reactive in the garden and I won't classify it mm. as, you know, new a new gardener issue. I think everybody does that. You know, we love our gardens. Mm. Our gardens are personal expressions of, you know, who we are and what we value. And it's it's alarming. You see, you know, a plant that you're trying to grow and you freak out. You don't know what to do. But when you put it in perspective and you remember that it's all part of a bigger system, then mm. I think you can put sound judgment mm. behind what steps you're going to take to address it. You know, one of my first mm. interviews was with Shane Smith of the Cheyenne Botanical Garden out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And All right. he is a greenhouse guru. And when you're growing in a greenhouse, you can have a pest issue that gets out of control very quickly because you're in this very contained environment. Right. And one of the things he shared with me, and I thought it was so fascinating and it was so simple. And yet I think so many people would doubt the efficacy of it. And that was when he runs into a pest problem his first and preferred course of action is sharp streams of water. He will mm. blast the plant. Instead of taking a chemical, um, mm. he'll blast that plant with water and aggressively go after it. And the underside of the leaf and the top side of the leaf. Mm. And he finds that to be very, very effective. I was just reading an old Martha Stewart living catalog or magazine. Mm -hmm. It must have been. Actually, it might have been her recent one. I read so many of her different articles through the years that... I, I can't remember, but all blurs into one. <laughs> it does. But, you know, her solution was water with a little bit of dish detergent in it. Yes, that's right. That's a very popular way of doing it. So I guess the first thing is if you see a small cluster, if you just pinch off the infected parts and sort of squash them between your fingers, the next step up is spraying them with a jet of water, blasting them off onto the ground. And then, you know, that soapy dish water is, is a good one as well. Just a few drops in a, in a spray bottle of water and it just does the trick. Because, of course, if you're spraying some type of insecticide, you're killing beneficials in addition to the pests that you want to address. That's right. And a lot of the pests, they can reproduce incredibly rapidly. Take the aphid again. If you track how quickly it reproduces and you start at the growing season with two aphids, by the end of the growing season, if they all survived and they all reproduced at the same rate, you'd sort of have a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool of aphids <laughs> or more. It's something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. So they reproduce quickly, but a ladybug, for example, doesn't. So you've knocked out the pest. But the pest is going to come back in two weeks, even if it's from outside the garden, and it'll just reproduce. But hey, where have all the beneficials gone? You're going to have to wait another season for them. So if you can always tolerate a kind of low level of pests to keep the beneficials on board, then that's always the way to do it. Yes. 
Well, let's continue through the bug identification guide that you have. Yeah. Are there any other ones that you want to highlight? To be honest, we're genuinely interested in every single pest. And that's not a cop out. It's just because this hasn't been done before, we don't know how prevalent they all are. So the ideal would be for people to go out in the garden or, or just when they're gardening, just keep an eye out. And when you see a beetle of any sort whatsoever, try and identify it and report it. So we're not interested in three or four of the most common ones. We do want to know about um, all of them, really. But we do expect some will be uh, much more prevalent. So I guess as well as aphids, things like wireworms, for example, uh, you know, pea moths, those are sort of particularly pesky in the UK anyway. And so always keep an eye out, be our detectives, you know, be out there in the garden and help us kind of uh, spot these guys and report them. Let's go into the whole citizen science project angle. Yes. So the big bug hunt relies on lots and lots of people reporting pests. So we call it citizen science. It's uh, There's lots of examples of citizen science projects around. So this one's, you know, a citizen science project for gardeners. It really is only going to work if we get many, many thousands of reports from across the world so that we get the resolution of the data we need to be able to produce the pest prediction services. It's a great project for people to be involved in. If you leave a report, it helps us develop the pest prediction service, which can then be used by the gardener in a few years time to help obviously fend themselves against pests. So it's a really positive project all around really to be involved in. As I was thinking about your citizen science project here with the big bug hunt, there is an element to that because the whole goal behind collecting this data is to be Mm. able to put together a very valuable gardening app that people can have on their smartphones or on their devices so that they can track where pests are and then learn what to do about them so they can be proactive in, you know, getting out there and addressing Mm -hmm. it. And one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about this particular project that you're working on is the value of having a good garden app. And there are not many really Mm. good garden apps out there yet, are there? No, I mean, that's right. You know, we want to develop something that ultimately is an everyday resource for gardeners. We want it to be part of their toolkit, essentially. So we do envisage it potentially being an app on a smartphone. So you have it out in the garden and you can, you know, always have it with you as part of your toolkit and you'll get a, I don't know, maybe a text message or an email alert or something on the app that will tell you when something's heading your way. So it's, uh, you know, it could be a really useful piece of kit to have. And uh, there isn't anything like it at the moment, which is precisely why, you know, we have decided to do it. It's got funding in the UK to help us to do it. So we've got Innovate UK and the Biological Sciences Research Council who are sort of helping to fund it because there is a lot of university expert time in this and a lot of sort of work behind the scenes. So there's obviously a great appetite for it. So that's very encouraging. The other thing that I think is very nice about your particular app is the interactive quality of it, that you can at some point know that there are people around you that are also experiencing this pest and that it's more than just looking up in a reference guide, what possible pest could this be? Yes. So Ben, tell us about the newsletter because the newsletter is really how people can benefit from your pest prediction service and at the same time stay informed about the big bug hunt. 
That's right. So uh, the newsletter is completely optional. You can leave your email address if you'd like to opt in. The newsletter comes out every single week. And in that newsletter, we offer topical tips for that week, some of the pests that you might want to watch out for, and indeed some of the beneficial bugs as well. So it's really just generally helpful to keep an eye on sort of bugs, good and bad, in your garden. And there's also links in the newsletter to other videos and articles that we've done in the past on how to control pests and how to keep your garden in good health. So it, at the moment, because it's our first year of reporting, it will be sort of more general based on what we know is quite common in that particular month and week. So it'll be quite general, but we do anticipate that towards the end of this growing season, we can update people in general saying, actually, we've had a lot of this particular pest reported. Here's our progress to date. This is how we're doing. And then next year, there may well be the chance to kind of take some of the data that we've already accrued this year and apply it and sort of give more specific warnings. And you do offer a ton of helpful tips to people as well. So if they have questions about a particular bug and it's not in the newsletter, they can go to your website and do research that way as well. That's right. So obviously we've got our bug identification guides on the website. So that's there and that's a very useful resource indeed. You can also contact us via the website as well. So it's a very memorable website, bigbughunt.com. So just feel free to spread that around. And once the people come onto the website, they can see what it's all about. And of course, they can sign up for the weekly newsletter, which goes on throughout the growing season. Please do spread the word because we're really, really keen. We get about two and a half thousand bug reports every single week, but we need much more because the more reports we get, the better the resolution of data and the quicker we can work towards producing this pest prediction service. Well, and you must have pockets too where this is catching on, where people are doing a better job of reporting than in other areas. Is it more popular right now in the United Kingdom? Well, do you know what? We were looking at the recent kind of spread of where all the reports are coming from, and it really is pretty even across the uh, North America, across the US and Canada, and across the UK, you know, according to where the populations are. So obviously denser in the kind of northeastern seaboard and, and the west coast, etc., than maybe kind of way out in sort of the Dakotas, for example. It's fairly evenly spread, so which is great because that's what we want, really. We want reports coming from right across the US and beyond. But we're getting good reports from uh, both sides of the Atlantic. Well, pest prediction will be a valuable tool for gardeners. And this app, the Big Bug Hunt, will someday help them predict and anticipate the things that are coming their way in terms of bugs, right? It really will. That's the great thing is that once the app's developed and people get these warnings about pests heading their way, they can put up the defenses. Forewarned is forearmed. So they will be better gardeners. There's no doubt about it. Well, they'll probably be the same gardeners. It's just they'll have more effective tools to be better at what they do. Absolutely. I'll give you a, just kind of a hyper-local example. I had posted on my mm. Facebook page about a Japanese beetle this week that was infesting one of my willows. And so I was posting about how I was handling that with sharp streams of water. And not a week later, I had a neighbor sending me a note going, hey, we've got them too. And here's what we're doing about it. Basically the same thing. But she was more inclined to kind of pick them off by hand and I don't want to touch them. So, but I thought, well, there you go. That's the big bug hunt right there. 
where you're just spreading information and letting people know when these things are coming to your area. That's absolutely right. That's that's exactly it. So any pest can be reported. Actually, coincidentally, Japanese beetles are uh, among our top 10 of pests that are reported in the United States. So oh, they are. it's it's clearly a big pest there. Um, fortunately, we don't get them in the UK. So uh, you we're, don't. we're blessed by that. We don't, no. <laughs> so it's an unknown pest here. So, um, you know, we've had to swat up on uh, on what's big in the US and, and Canada so that we've got area-specific pests. Oh, isn't that interesting? Well, you're, I do you're, feel for you. <laughs> you're, you're blessed to not have to deal with that problem, that's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Although we get our fair share of, of the usual uh, bugs, so we're not too blessed. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, if people wanted to get a hold of you in particular, do they reach you through the website? Is that how they would best get a hold of you? That would be the best way to do it. We're not elusive. We're very much reactive. So any email we get, we respond to pretty quickly. And if you, if someone wants to specifically talk to me about something, then they can do that. Just let us know in the body of the email that that's the case. We're very accessible. We're a small team, but small but perfectly formed team. We're very keen to, to hear from people. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Ben, I want to thank you for your time today. This was really, really great. And I love the Citizen Science Project, the big bug hunt. And I hope everyone participates and helps spread the word. Thanks so much, Jennifer. It's been an absolute pleasure being on your show. And, uh, and thanks for the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Okay. Cheerio, Jennifer. Thanks. All righty. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Laura Eubanks of Design for Serenity and Benedict Van Heems of The Big Bug Hunt for being my guests. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, I'm Kadena and David Gregerson, and my production assistant, Taylor Davey. Just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Laura shared and that Benedict shared on the show at my website, sixfootmama.com, which is also the home for the Still Growing Podcast. And all you have to do is click on the tab called Still Growing Podcast, and you'll find the show notes for today's episode. Again, that's on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And if you really like the show, I'd like to invite you to join the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. It's a great place to ask questions, share your own garden stories, interact with the great guests that are featured on Still Growing, and connect with other listeners of the show. So go ahead and check it out. I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.